You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. In this episode, Boring is the New Black, our two grumpy strategists reunite to unpack the defence budget, the future of Papua New Guinea, you'll hear from Stephanie Copas-Campbell on what role Australia should be playing in the future of our nearest neighbour. But first up, The 45th Parliament has been dissolved and we're officially in election mode. But are we vulnerable to foreign interference? I spoke with Fergus Hansen, head of our International Cyber Policy Centre, to find out. Fergus, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. So as of this morning, we're recording on Thursday morning, the election, the Australian federal election has been called by our Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Um, And I know that you've been working on a project on electoral interference. And um, because I'm just incredibly busy and important, uh, I don't have time to do any research on the topic myself. So I was hoping I could get up to speed by having a quick convo with you about it. Sound good? Sounds good. So electoral interference, what exactly does that look like? Well, it looks like lots of different things. And I think one of the reasons this is so difficult to get on top of is because it's so easy to adapt your behaviour. So if you think about the 2016 US presidential election, we had lots of reporting about different ways that Russia was interfering in the US elections. It was buying ads on Facebook. It was setting up fake groups uh, on Facebook and often from opposing sides and and getting them to face off against each other. Uh, It was leaking uh, emails they'd stolen from people like John Podesta uh, from the Democrats. Um, So there was lots of different techniques that were being used, um, but now we're seeing those techniques evolve. So, for example, one of the really interesting issues we're seeing in the US, for example, is looking at trying to co-opt existing uh, activist groups that uh, are real-life activist groups in the United States and to co-opt them as states and nudge them in different directions. And that's a really difficult thing to grapple with now because you think, well, you can't really silence these people because they believe that they're genuine activists. Uh, and so that's, a, that's an example where it's really pernicious and really difficult to deal with and it's, an, it's adaptive. So just to interrupt you there, when you're talking about activist groups, is that different from lobby groups? So when we had the Russian agent infiltrate the NRA and then the Al Jazeera journalist um, get into the NRA convention, is are these two different things? Is an activist group different to a lobby group? I mean, I think it could be potentially both. I mean, there's no reason why state-based actors couldn't target both groups, but I think the the really interesting one is targeting sort of grassroots mm-hmm. activist groups, uh, ones that are probably at the fringe are going to be the most divisive in society, whichever society that is, uh, and breaking to those groups in sort of quite sneaky ways and convincing those activists to take certain steps or to help them raise funds, for example. But because they genuinely believe that they're grassroots activists, they're citizens of that country, they probably have a nationalist sort of viewpoint on lots of things, it can be really difficult to grapple with that problem when you've got a state-based actor nudging them in different directions. It's also a difference between different actors. So you might have the Russian playbook, which is trying to throw chaos into a system. It doesn't really care who wins just as long as Western society is corroded and and the institutions that prop it up are corroded. The Chinese, for example, I think have a different kind of objective. They're not trying to just destroy the West and destroy all international institutions, but they're trying to disrupt people uh, and get rid of people that are hostile to the Chinese Communist Party 
or they might be trying to rebuild international institutions, but in their own image. So I think their, their agenda is not as chaotic as the Russians, um, but it's different and therefore they're going to use different tactics. Is this something that Western countries do as well or is it just um, places like China and Russia? Yeah, I mean, great question. So there's a long history of Western intervention in societies all around the world, uh, running uh, operations, you know, in, in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world, uh, and for, for decades and decades. I Any think recent examples. Well, I think there's there's this is all a spectrum issue. So if you think about uh, groups like the BBC or um, the ABC that broadcasts internationally as well. That's in a way, you know, broadcasting your message to other countries around the world and taking a, a pers- your sort of national perspective and promoting uh, your ideas around the world. That's, I think, you know, within the acceptable category. We all sort of think that that's perfectly reasonable, it's transparent, we understand it. Uh, this, I think, is more pernicious in terms of trying to change the way that um, democracies function, how people trust uh, other their societies, uh, maybe even swinging an election in a different way. So I think there's a, there's a very broad spectrum, uh, and I don't think that the, the West is engaging in the same way that we're seeing the Russians engage in trying to just destroy uh, democratic institutions and doing it in a very uh, underhand way. Mm. It's very interesting to figure out, you know, at what point is it acceptable soft power and at what point does it become pernicious um, and, and who decides that? But I just wanted to touch base with the, I guess, Australian perspective. Is this something that's happening in Australia and noting that we're about to go into an election? I mean, are we vulnerable to this? Well, absolutely, it's happening in Australia. So we saw uh, just a couple of weeks ago the Prime Minister announced that state-based actors had actually uh, broke into the Australian uh, Parliament again uh, and also that they had also filtered down into the um, three political parties, the Liberal Party, the National Party and um, the Labor Party. Um, so there's a there's an example right on our own doorstep uh, that's happened in Australia, and we also have uh, I think evidence of of different campaigns that are filtering into Australia that could well be state backed, and so I think it, it, this is something that is all societies and uh, all democracies are facing off at uh, and look and have trouble with at the moment. And I think the really hard thing for them to grapple with is these attacks tend to target the hallmarks of democracy. They tend to target weak points that also we regard as essential to democracy, like free speech or trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you're trying to erode uh, trust in public institutions or you take advantage of that, it can be really hard as a state to grapple with that. I mean, it's especially difficult considering that trust seems to be at an all-time low in our institutions and politicians anyway. Can you just quickly take me through what are the different types of um, interference in our elections? What does it look like? Well, the way that we've broken it down in our report is into three buckets. There's the technical piece. So are your electoral rolls secure, the transmissions of the results, um, the e-voting systems that some countries have in place and that we have in place in New South Wales. So that's the technical piece. There's the information environment, which is the the ecosystem that surrounds an election, and that can be things like fake news, for example. And then there's a third bucket, which I think often gets overlooked, which is the erosion of public trust in public institutions. And so we see some quite pernicious campaigns that are very subtle, but I think quite damaging to key characteristics of a democracy like trust. Uh, and if you take, for example, one of the campaigns that was run during Brexit, it said, use a pen, not, uh, not pencil, when you're filling out your ballot. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds, you know, can be 
prima facie quite sensible. Yeah, I'd use a pen. So, you know, my ballot's definitely recorded, you know, accurately. But I think the, the subtle message behind that is that electoral officials are rubbing out your vote, mm-hmm. your pencil um, marked vote and changing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a very corrosive kind of idea that, you know, somehow our electoral officials are, you know, corrupt and that votes are being changed and the person that's elected is not the person you think they're going to be. And we're starting to see campaigns like that s- start to erode um, core institutions that are essential to democracy like the AEC that we really need to maintain trust in if we're going to um, maintain confidence in our own democracy. And that campaign during Brexit, I mean, is there, has there ever been an example in the UK? Well, I think this is one of the, you know, the, the great ironies is that there's there's so much scrutiny at these elections. If you've ever actually gone into a accounting um, booth and seen the number of people scrutinising ballots and the number of people there in, in democracies that are doing this, it's, you know, it's just unbelievable to believe, you know, mm-hmm. to, for people to be thinking that there's somehow this, you know, great fraud being perpetrated. Um, but of course, most voters don't see that. Um, so this sort of conspiracy idea uh, that you know somehow votes are being tampered with is is starting to grow in in small uh, numbers, but nonetheless you know worrying numbers when you think that this is absolutely the linchpin of our democracy. What is Australia doing about this? You know what are your policy recommendations? Well, we've had, for example, laws passed the foreign interference laws that are trying to uh, encourage entities that are working on behalf of other states to to at least register that, so to shine some light on what's going on. We had uh, $75,000 given to each of the political parties to help them shore up their IT systems to try and protect against a breach. Now, that is nowhere near enough. It's a very small amount of money. It's a tiny amount of money uh, for organisations that we know are going to be targeted, that we know have a huge amount of sensitive data, um, and that we've seen you know multiple examples around the world of them being targeted. So I think that was a little bit naive of us to to believe that you know that would be enough to to be able to protect them. I think we need to do a lot more, um, but it's it's a tricky because these are shoestring operations. They don't have a lot of staff, uh, and then they surge to become huge operations when elections happen. Uh, they bring on a whole bunch of people that are connected to their systems, and then they shrink back down again. So you know, do we invest a huge amount of money to to shore up these tiny organisations as they? most of the time or how do we how do we deal with that and I don't think we've quite uh, wrapped our heads around how to do that and we've had the, the fallout from that where the three parties have been breached. Well thank you for getting me up to speed Fergus I'll be certainly watching this election campaign with interest. Thanks so much for having me. Now you'll hear from our two grumpy strategists Marcus Hellier and Michael Shoebridge to put the slogans aside and discuss what the defence budget really means. All right, well, Marcus, um, fantastic that budget time has come around again, so we get to have a chat about the the wonders of the defence budget. Uh, You've done a short piece. I know you'll do some longer analysis once the election commitments are all um, clearer. But boring is the new black, is what you called it. So this sounds like the government's delivering on the defence funding promises they made. Yes. There are absolutely no surprises in the budget this time round. The government is delivering the money it committed to. So the big top-level numbers are total defence budget, and that includes the Signals Directorate as well, is $38.7 billion this year. That's a real growth of about 1.2%, so it is actually going up in real terms, and that's 1.93% of GDP. 
So we haven't hit 2% yet, but the government uh, promise was to hit it in 2021, which is next year. The forward estimates figures in the budget statements say we'll get there. But what it does mean for the next government, whoever that is, it is quite a big jump. So it'll be a jump of about 3 billion or 5% in real terms to get there next year. So there's still some way to go. So during the election campaign, I suppose we'll be looking for those commitments from both sides of politics. So I think the coalition's been clear so far. Um, what kind of commitment do you think we'll get? Will we get a 2% commitment or will we get this fixed number commitment? Because there were both in the 16 white paper. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, both of the parties have committed to 2%. So Labor has also uh, committed and, and Bill Shorten has mentioned that in a number of speeches. But yeah, there's actually two commitments in the white paper. One is the 2% number. And then there's also a fixed funding line, which was uh, presented there, which essentially guaranteed uh, defence a fixed amount of funding. So if GDP went up and or down, its budget wouldn't go up or down. And that was meant to provide certainty. So when our four years, four budget years in uh, since the white paper. So I thought, let's go back and have a look and see um, whether the government has delivered. And based on the picture I can see is that despite all the big numbers uh, moving around in terms of operational supplementation and forex uh, adjustments, so foreign exchange rate adjustments, despite all of that, if you get underneath that, it looks like the government has actually delivered its white paper funding commitment. It's come within a fraction of a percent. Well, uh, that's good news. I wonder what Donald Trump would make of this, though, because it's not at 2% yet. And I don't know if you've seen many of those NATO meetings, but when the NATO countries try to tell him, well, it's not 2%, but let me explain, it doesn't kind of work. He's, he's a simple kind of guy on that. So... Well, I, I think Donald Trump would be happy with where our, our budget is going. So our budget is definitely going up in real terms. Some of the NATO countries talk a good game but haven't actually made much progress. But I think we're getting there. So you're telling me we've got to hope that GDP doesn't grow all that much because that way the government will deliver on 2% more easily. Well, if GDP grows by a lot, then that number of that I said to, of another $3 billion to hit 2%, that's going to go up as well. And where's that $3 billion going to be spent? Because when I, I looked at the PBS and your analysis, it looks like the capital part, which is the investment part, you know, new capability, uh, facilities, ICT, that isn't going up as fast as planned. So... Well, so, where is the money going? So the white paper uh, had very ambitious capital spend. Uh, that there is still uh, ambitious capital spend. If you look at the budget statements this year and look at the Ford estimates, the uh, the capital budget is going up in you know absolutely heroic terms. Uh, one of the things I've suggested is that um, it's really hard to spend that money, particularly when you've got a lot of developmental programs in your portfolio, such as future submarines and future. Frigate. So uh, defence has, has underspent against the white paper capital target, but it has still done very well. You know, the, well, it's the gone up, but not by as much as it needs to go up, is, is, is the point. And if you're no. going to get that huge investment program, you know, the magical $200 billion, hasn't that rate of growth got to be faster, particularly in coming years? Uh, well, to be perfectly honest, I don't know where the $200 billion figure comes from and I can't really make sense of it. But let's let's put 
that slogan number aside, what's actually going on? Well, what's actually going on is Defence is pumping a lot of money through its capital program. So Joint Strike Fighter this year has gone from $2 billion to $2.5 billion. You know, that's a huge amount of money. And shipbuilding uh, has hit $2 billion this year. So Australian shipbuilding uh, programs have now hit $2 billion. Last year, we said it's going to get to about 3.5 or 4 And I think it's it's that number, I think, is looking more and more credible because we've hit $2 billion before the future frigates and uh, future submarine have even cut steel. So I don't think three and a half or four billion for shipbuilding is an unreasonable number. So what does that mean? It means, yes, the capital budget does have to go up a lot. Uh, if you look at the forward estimates, it is going up a lot, but still um, it's hard to spend that money. Hasn't it got year-on-year increases in capital required of about 20%? Yeah, so a couple of those years that the jump is massive and you sort of ask yourself, can defence really spend that money? I'm a little sceptical. The other thing that we've seen uh, since the white paper is that um, the sustainment budget has increased faster than predicted. So just as defence has slightly uh, undershot its capital target by about 10%, sustainment has gone up by a similar amount. Mm. To me, that suggests that, um, you know, sustainment is costing more than expected and defence may have had to pull money out of its capital program to boost sustainment spending. So normally that means a couple of things. Um, Either older systems you know, and older ships, let's say, like the Anzacs, are starting to cost more to own and operate uh, as they age. That's that's the normal bathtub effect. The other one can be a bit of a sticker shock when the new things come in and they cost more uh, to own and operate than you expected or than the thing they replaced. So is is are both of those things going on? Are Anzacs look like it's a pressure. If you, if you look at that audit report, uh, the fact that they're not actually getting the serviceability out means they've probably got to spend a whole lot more money to make them Mm -hmm. um, operational. Well, so, yeah, as you say, the ANAO did a very uh, informative report on the ANZACs recently. One thing that they confirmed is something that we suspected, which is ANZACs are going to have to serve for a very long time to come, so another 24 years until the last ANZAC leaves service. So, again, just like the Collins submarines, they're only about halfway through their life. now, to, in all honesty, in all fairness, Navy says they are hitting the targets in terms of um, getting ships to sea. But you do ask the question of, you know, we, are we falling into the trap of prioritising current day operations over long-term sustainment? And so that's something that Navy, I think, will really have to pay uh, close attention mm. to. And that. is there a bit of cannibalising going on? And is that going to be a longer-term issue uh, with a bigger bill to... Well, again, that's something that um, ANAO has pointed to. In fairness, Defence has said, well, it was going on as we're sort of transitioning to a new sustainment approach and we've got it under control. But again, it's something to, I think we need to, you know, keep a close eye on. The other thing of interest out of the ANAO report is that uh, HMAS Perth, which went through its deep maintenance, had a number of very uh, important capability upgrades done to it. Uh, the uh, the upgrade was completed, but there was no crew because Navy didn't have the people. And so Ooh. essentially it's up on blocks for two years until Navy can get the crew. So, you know, 
we're in the middle of a huge growth period for Navy. Uh, we've you know, suggested before that it's doubling in size in terms of tonnage. That will need more people. And so, you know, it's important that Navy, and we've focused a lot on submarines, but it appears there are pressures across all of Navy. surface fleet, yeah. You called it, um, your analysis, boring as the new black, but I thought there was a stealthy surprise in there. I I looked at the the JSF number. Now, this is a fifth-generation aircraft, the first fifth-generation aircraft that the uh, RAAF is operating. And yet its per hour flying costs are about half those of the Super Hornet and the Growler, which are, you know, the Growler's a complicated electronic attack aircraft, um, but this fifth generation aircraft costs half the price per flying hour? Yeah, we've, we've argued before that, you know, one of the big um, questions around our sustainment budget in the future is the cost of JSF. Now, the JSF program has always said they want to get the sustainment costs down to something like legacy aircraft, like classic Hornets or F-16s. And that, you know, I think most people would go, that's a big ask because, as you say, it's a very uh, complicated, complex aircraft. That would be a courageous, aspirational move in political language. Now, one one of the mysteries to me in the defence sustainment budget is why Super Hornets and Growlers cost so much. They they cost about three to four times as much to operate per hour or per aircraft as our trusty old classic Hornets. So the question has always been, will... um, JSF costs something like our trusty old classic Hornet or something like uh, the very expensive Super Hornets and Growlers. Well, this year in the budget, we got a first glimpse of the cost of uh, JSF and it's come in at $42,000 an hour. So that puts it sort of roughly half the cost of Super Hornet and Growler, but twice the cost of the classic Hornet. So, I mean, that sounds to me like a classic case of maybe both those numbers are wrong. You know, maybe the Growler Super Hornet number needs to needs to be driven down, and, and maybe it's it's not representative. But the JSF number, just fifth generation stealth aircraft, whole lot of things to maintain that stealth profile and, and operate that aircraft that have never had to be done before. Yeah, it I looks look, magically low at this. I, point. I think uh, there is still a long way to go on JSF sustainment numbers, but I suspect that Defence is doing a lot of work to try and understand those numbers and get them under control. Mm. Right. So, uh, and the other thing, you know, if we're talking about transparency in budgeting and delivery on commitments, the only place I could see the thirty-eight point seven billion dollars was in the minister's press release. So. Um, as an analyst, how did you put these numbers together to see whether or not that 2% or the fixed funding line is being delivered on? And should it be easier? Well, it should be easier. And I think, um, I think you know, it's a big fail in terms of accountability and the clear read principle, which the government is uh, supposedly meant to be striving towards, that the the top level number, the 38.7 that the minister refers to in his budget media release, you can't find that number anywhere in the PBS. You actually have to go to three different places and combine it. And to do that, I actually had to get advice from defence officials to do that. So for the average Australian, I don't think that's good enough that they well, can't find that number that This anywhere. is a good news story hidden in some lack of transparency. Yeah, this is, that's exactly this right. Is a, I don't a government think... delivery on a commitment and defence spending the money 
But you know, from a public point of view, without that clarity of where the numbers are, there's that lingering suspicion there's a pee and thimble trick going on, and it needn't be like that. I agree entirely. Well, hopefully that's not the point of our, our budget, Michael, to make Donald Trump happy, but uh, it makes me happy, you know, that uh, Defence is getting the money to deliver. Good. Well, thanks very much, Marcus. Finally, I sat down with our roving reporter, Brendan Nicholson, to chat about Stephanie Copas Campbell's gala dinner address on the future of Papua New Guinea and its importance to Australia. Brendan, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks very much, Renee. Uh, Brendan, we had a fabulous uh, speaker at our annual gala dinner this week, Stephanie Copas Campbell, the head of the Oil Search Foundation, among many other things. Um, I, I thought it was just an outstanding speech. Did you feel the same way? Look, I did. Uh, Stephanie Copas Campbell is a, is a force of nature. She's one of those individuals who, by dint of a great intellect, and a charming but forceful personality makes a great difference. She's Alaskan-born and Australian. She's become a passionate and eloquent advocate for Australia's closest neighbour, Papua New Guinea, and a voice of concern that most Australians know very little about the island nation. She's a source of sage advice on how both countries can benefit more from their relationship and on the risks to our national security if we don't do that. Two decades ago, Stephanie was working in what was then AusAid, uh, helping plan assistance programs in, in the region. Her army officer husband, Angus, had been posted to Townsville in East Timor, and Stephanie, being relatively new to Australia, looked at a map to find somewhere nearby and opted to take a job in PNG. And after she had opted to take that job in PNG, there were a lot of people in her life who were starting to see doubt in her mind about that decision after she'd heard all of these outrageous stories of life in PNG. And we're about to hear a fantastic anecdote about um, two different robberies, one taking place in PNG and one taking place I in Manukau. I'm normally pretty confident in my decisions. I'm starting to wonder, mm, maybe I should be going to Townsville after all. The turning point for me two bank robberies. The first one was in Port Moresby. And High Commissioner, you might remember this, 1999, right? It's a pretty spectacular bank robbery. Five rascals, rascals, robbers in PNG, they commandeered a helicopter and they land the helicopter on the top of a bank in the middle of downtown Port Moresby. And they get out and they have guns and they have pistols and they have or rifles, pistols, and grenades, all sorts of things. And they start to rob the bank, and gunshots are fired, and the police came. Good, the police were there. Police come in, rascals go, they, they go after the chopper, they start to fly away, and as they're ascending, the police shot the chopper down, lands in the middle of Port Moresby. This is 11 o'clock in the morning, business hours, right? So they get out, and this gun battles ensues. It's all stuff from the movies like you wouldn't believe. All five of them are shot dead. And I remember reading at the time, I just I found it on the internet, great thing about the internet, I pulled it up, and this is what the paper said at the end. Crime is endemic in Port Moresby, where criminal gangs operate freely. Homes, hotels, diplomatic missions are all surrounded by razor wire, and gun battles between police and criminals are not uncommon. So I'm ready at this point to pull out of my posting. 
until the second bank robbery. This one was in Canberra, in Monaco, at the ANZ, and I was in the bank. I kid you not, I was in the bank. I was, I was, wasn't I, I guess. I was in the bank. This guy walks in, he has, it's Friday afternoon in the bank, he has a ski mask over his head, he has, weirdly, this Akubra hat on and a shotgun. I kid you not. And he says, everyone, get on the effing floor. He said the full word. Get on the effing floor. This is an effing bank robbery. This is what he said. So I get on the floor. And the woman next to me, I can hear her whimpering in fear. The man on the other side, I can smell his sweat. Like, it was that scary. But me, this calm, it like comes over me. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. They tell me Port Moresby is dangerous, and here I am, I'm lying on the floor in Monica, ANZ, in the bank. And he's robbing the bank, and at least, well, if I'm in PNG, I'll be prepared for it. I get up, I walk out of that bank, I am ready for my posting. I don't want to hear another word about it. I'm ready to go. So Stephanie decided to take her family to PNG, and that began her long love affair with the country and its people. She served two postings there with AusAid, the second as head of its PNG aid program. She became a senior executive in the international NGO CARE and later moved to the business sector to run the Oil Search Foundation, the development partner of PNG's biggest company. The foundation invests a share of the company's profits and projects that improve the lives of Papua New Guineans with a focus on health, leadership and education and women's protection and empowerment. She also chairs the board of the Southern Highlands Provincial Health Authority. In her speech, Stephanie set out her mission to raise awareness of PNG in Australia and elsewhere because, she says, we have a moral imperative to help a much less developed neighbour and what happens in PNG matters a lot to our country. So we'll just hear from Steph about why that So while humanitarian interests are important, it's also very true that PNG's domestic challenges, especially those resulting in the movement of crime, disease and people, can compromise Australia's border security. And the influence of external powers in PNG, whose intentions may be ill-disposed to Australian interests, are presenting a profound strategic challenge. Now, one thing that's been completely visible in my time in PNG is increased Asian presence. Some reports suggest, for example, China, and Chinese investments are particularly prominent. Some reports suggest that last year around $3 billion were, was invested by, by China. Now, there's other reports that say that's less, but I can certainly say that when you're in Port Moresby driving around, there are visible signs everywhere. Chinese aid, Chinese infrastructure, Chinese presence. It's very, very visible. There are over 40 Chinese companies operating in PNG. Now, this isn't all bad. For one thing, you've asked me to speak tonight. That's good. And infrastructure is improved. That's good. And Moresby, I have to say, is booming like never before. But it does show a rise in the ability to influence strategic interest as well as economic ones. Now, the other thing we need to be worried about is the trade of guns, drugs, people, money laundering. I spend a lot of time, because I actually have drawn the card to work in the three provinces at the moment whose capitals do not have an operating airport, um, Hela, Southern Highlands and Gulf. No airports where I go. So I spend a lot of time in helicopters. And I spend a lot of time peering down over this gorgeous rainforest, these beautiful, gorgeous, rushing rivers. But I sometimes think, 
wow, what could you transport in those rivers? For example, the 500 kilometer Parai River, which goes from the center of the highlands right down to the Gulf and out to Australia. I also think, look at all these little um, airstrips around that are unmanned and isolated. And what about the border with West Papua? You can see how easy that is to get things transported right into Australia. One thing that I'm particularly concerned about being in the health sector is the rise of drug-resistant diseases. PNG has one of the highest, if it's not the highest, it's the second highest, we're still crunching the numbers, of drug-resistant HIV in the world. And I'm seeing in my job a lot of drug-resistant TB. I was in Kokori Hospital in Gulf Province the other day, and the beds were literally spilling over with TB patients. Now, these bacteria and viruses, they can change. They can evolve, especially as people go on and off medication. They can become easier to spread, and definitely they're becoming harder to treat. So again, that's a serious issue for PNG and for Australia. And the final issue I'd like to mention, and there's others, but in terms of those things that certainly keep me awake sometimes at night, is the booming population growth in PNG, one of the fastest growing populations in the world on our doorstep. It's set to double by 2040. In 1975 at Independence, it was 2 million people. It's now somewhere around 8 million plus. Official statistics say 8 million. I'm saying plus. I'm saying plus because, for example, in our recent immunization round for polio where I work, we went by the census figures and we terribly underestimated the population. This population growth leading to a youth bulge about 60% of the population under the age of 25, about 40% under the age of 15. And we know from other parts of the world, when you combine a youth bulge with a lack of opportunities because the health and education services, they're not increasing at the same pace. In fact, in some cases, they're decreasing. That can be explosive. And this is exacerbated by malnutrition, which is another security concern. Here's why. PNG has the fourth highest rate of stunting due to malnutrition in the world. And when a child misses nutrition in the first thousand years of his or her life, this can result in cognitive impairment, which means all of these children, and we're looking at up to 50% of the PNG population, are not able to take advantage of any opportunities that are offered. But they can still feel angry. They can still feel disempowered. They can still use a gun. Stephanie points out that PNG has the third largest natural rainforest in the world, covering 77% of the landmass. At least 5% of the planet's animal and plant species live, live there, along with more than 2,000 species of orchids and 2,000 species of ferns. It's the most unexplored country in the world, so who would not want to visit it? As she says, Australians apparently. While Australians are big international travellers, only about 10,000 are in PNG at any time, including those working in the government and private sectors, and more than 5,000 walking the Kokoda track every year. So I ask you this, who would not want to go to PNG? Well, apparently, Australians. According to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, there are only 10,000 Australians in PNG at any one time, that includes the 5,000 who walk the Kokoda track each year and several thousand who are up there with the private sector and the government working. And this is even more remarkable because if you think the Australian Bureau of Statistics last year said that about half of us, 
half of the population of Australia travel overseas every year. We're going to New Zealand, number one pick. We're going to China. We're going to Indonesia. We're going to Thailand. We're going to America. We're going to Europe. We're not going to P&G. But those that do go, I'm going to tell you now, there's one thing that they didn't warn me. I'm going to warn you, right? I'm going to warn you. Ready? You risk catching a bug if you go there. That bug, it's called the PNG bug. It gets in your bloodstream and it never, ever goes away. I have that bug. And I've spent the last 20 years telling people about PNG. A number of you in this room will have been cornered by me at a cocktail party or at a dinner party. And you're saying, oh, here comes that crazy PNG lady. You know, that's me. But are on this mission to raise awareness because what happens in Papua New Guinea, it matters a heck of a lot to Australia. I'm a little ashamed to admit that I'm one of the uh, many Australians Stephanie spoke about who uh, aren't really aware of just how close PNG is to Australia. So we'll just hear Steph now. Now, when I was in government, I always volunteered to be on the graduate intake rounds. I loved that job. And on my rounds, we always asked one question consistently, and that was, who is our closest neighbor? And number one answer, New Zealand. Uh, sorry, Indonesia. Number two answer, New Zealand. We never, rarely, we did occasionally a smart one would say PNG. That's the correct answer, Papua New Guinea. PNG is only four kilometers from Australian territory. You can get there in 15 minutes in a small boat. If you want to go a more conventional route, it's about 90 minutes from Cairns to Port Moresby. And she also points out that, that millions of people right on our doorstep are doing it very tough. PNG is one of the highest rates of maternal and child mortality, HIV, and multi-drug resistant TB in the Asia-Pacific region, and one of the lowest life expectancies. It also has some of the lowest literacy rates and educational outcomes, and it's estimated that less than half of its citizens have access to safe water and only 13% of electricity. Polio has re-emerged there because of a very low immunisation rate. And PNG's domestic challenges can compromise Australia's border security and also make it vulnerable to external powers whose intentions may be ill-disposed to Australia's interests. There are obvious signs of Chinese activity everywhere. Of course, Chinese investment has many upsides. Infrastructure has improved and Port Moresby is booming but it also shows an increased ability to influence strategic interests as well as economic ones. So she did cover so many um, of the current domestic challenges facing PNG, but as well as offer solutions and, and how Australia's aid can play a role in that. Um, and there was definitely uh, a line I remember she said towards the end of her speech that really challenged the audience to think about how Australia would do in, in similar circumstances, um, especially with uh, electricity and access to Imagine, what would your life be without electricity? Just think about that for a minute. I mean, for those of you who have kids, let's just take you through that. You go home after work to get ready for dinner. You go home, you have to cook their dinner on your stove that you need to bring the wood in. You pollute the house. You hurt their little lungs because there's so much smoke in the house. You don't have any light to read them their bedtime story. You don't have time, really. I mean, you need to go and wash their clothes, but there's no time when you're washing the clothes down by the river to do anything other and wash their clothes because you don't have a washing machine and so there's no leisure time, there's no time to learn because you're doing all this extra work because you have no electricity. Let's say your little one falls out of bed and bumps her head in the middle of the night and it stitches so you race her to the, the local health centre. 
but there's no electricity, so they can't even see to stitch her up. And it goes on and on. Electricity is so fundamental to every single sector, and 87%, 87% of the PNG population know electricity. So this has the potential to be transformational, and I love it for that reason. So that was Stephanie Copas campbell who delivered the keynote address at Aspie's Gala Dinner on Tuesday, um, and Brendan has wrapped it up very nicely for us. Thank you, Brendan. Thanks very much, Renee. And if you're interested in watching the full address, we'll have a link to that in the description below. Thanks for listening to this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll be back in two weeks.